0: shepherd bible church sermon podcast our mission at good shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe grow and hope in jesus one of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word we believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church our desire is to preach christ crucified for you which means we hope that jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. And you can turn to Acts chapter 16 tonight. We are well deep in a series called Witnesses, Imperfect People Beholding the Perfect Work of Jesus. Praise God that He delights to use imperfect people because imperfect people are all that He has to choose from. But He delights to fill us, to use us. He has shown us Himself through the preaching of the Word. The apostles saw Jesus resurrected bodily with their own eyes. We have seen Him with the eyes of our hearts. And praise God for that beautiful miracle. The gospel has continued to spread. Uh, through, uh, through different regions of the known world. And even more recently, the, the Gentiles have heard and understood the gospel with a whole host of clarity. Uh, last week, we were discussing the, uh, at least a portion of the Jerusalem Council and the decision uh, made there, this letter by the apostles and the elders, that they shouldn't add anything more to salvation than just what Jesus has done in his empty cross and in his empty tomb. And that's uh, an astounding uh, help for us because if there was something else to add, would we have enough strength to pull it off? And the answer is no. Just like uh, we read last week uh, or two weeks ago from Peter, Peter said, our ancestors, our, our fathers from of old have tried this whole life by the law stuff and not even they had the ability to carry it out. We need a savior outside of us. So tonight we uh, delve into chapter 16. We're making our way. Paul begins another missionary journey and we're going to see Paul after the strengthening of the church with the letter that the apostles and elders spread around. Uh, Paul strengthens the church there at Antioch and then he's on the move yet again. So we're going to read chapter 16 and we're just going to start with verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was, all, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that, this, that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance and the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. As a pastor, I'm constantly thinking about this question and this is a new rhythm for for me, uh, being a church planter really since October officially. Uh, I'm constantly thinking what's next right even this week I was thinking what's next baby dedication check it off the list it's a cool what's next but even on bigger uh, categories and in bigger uh, light, uh, church life events and even on spiritual levels I'm constantly thinking all right what's next And there's a whole host of answers and there's a whole host of even temptations and things that flood my mind that probably you guys wouldn't appreciate all of them. You'd laugh at some of them and some of them you would cheer on and say, yes, bring it, we need that. But questions like, well, how are we gonna grow? How do we attract new people? What's our next discipleship step as a church? Where are we going? And maybe more importantly, how? are we going to get there? These are all kind of sub-questions that kind of float around when I'm forced to wrestle with the question of what's next. Maybe you as the church congregation and ministers at large, maybe you've thought, what's next for us? And you might have things like a building on your mind, or you might have uh, something related to a location or a meeting time, or maybe it's the uh, upcoming multiplication of community groups that you We'll think of a whole whole host of things. It could be, uh, what's next? What's the next meal going to be? Because we all love to eat food. Uh, What's the next church meal? What are we going to do? What's the next cool event? What's the next Instagram-worthy church moment that we can have? Well, it's important for us to say that no matter what is next, we have a mission at at our church that helps guide and steer exactly what we are to be doing, even amongst all those great questions. In fact, we really shouldn't even get beyond the mission of our church as we start thinking about what's next. Well, what's next? How about what we've always been doing? Stick to the mission, stick on task, stay on task. What is that? Well, it's for us to get the gospel out get the gospel out of our mouths so that people might believe in Jesus, so that we might together grow in Jesus and so that we might all have our hopes set on Jesus and his coming again. What are we to be doing? What's our next step? Well, that's why we have things like mission statement to help keep us in line, to help keep us centered on what's the main thing. And hopefully our mission statement has even been able to kind of make broad enough statements to keep us broadly on track so that we're not sidetracked with anything less, but also I hope our mission statement is specific enough to actually give us some action steps and action plans to get busy about so that we're not confused by anything greater. I hope it's right on track with the mission of Jesus that he would want us to be on. And so the question that we have even before us here in this text is kind of this same question. Paul is launching into a new uh, ministry endeavor here. And the question, as we run into a whole host of questions of what's next, Paul had those questions. Timothy, no doubt, had these questions. And those questions aren't going to get less. They're not going to have less what's next questions. What we're going to find is the church continues to get more What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? Until Jesus comes back. And we'll see how Paul answers it here in this text tonight. Here in verses 1 through 5, this is going to get a little monotonous, but I want to dive in a little bit uh, here tonight on this first statement because it might sound really familiar. What is next for Good Shepherd? Well, we have to remember we have to remember some important things like Paul and Timothy found out that the gospel builds the church. You're like, wait a second, I didn't see any of that as I read verses one through five. We'll dig in. This subpoint may actually sound very familiar. In fact, it was this one of the subpoints from last week. If you flip through your notes, you can remember subpoint number two. Let me read this and see if it sounds familiar to you. The pure gospel. Remember, we were talking about The pure gospel and the the litmus test that we are going through, right? The gospel poison. And then the litmus test of working with the pure gospel. It does a couple things. It's effective in a couple ways. Well, point two from last week's sermon. The pure gospel is strengthening to broken communities pursuing transformation. Which sounds like exactly what's being re-said here. The gospel builds the church. Or like we talked about from Peter and Paul and Barnabas and from James who gave us the understanding that the gospel and the gospel only, the gospel and the gospel alone, builds the church. And here in this third straight sermon, I know you're probably getting weary of hearing this, but it is the gospel that builds the church. I want to give a little bit of nuance here. Because builds has this idea of strengthens. It doesn't just mean numerically. Although, if you remember what I just read in in verse 5, you do see the church increasing numerically, which is helpful. Which is helpful to know that the gospel has the power to literally grow a church numerically. That's really helpful, especially for those of us if you're, if you're on the, the finance team. You, you, you need the, you're gauging those numbers, you're, ga- you're gauging uh, giving units and you're p- trying to put all the pieces together, you're trying to do the math, trying to make sure that this thing is not just growing, but that it's sustainably growing. It's so really important. But tonight, you understand that verses 1 through 5, we didn't see anything specifically related to the gospel directly. We really saw nothing in terms of Jesus' cross and blood. We really saw nothing in relation to the resurrection. All we saw was Paul hunting down this guy Timothy, which apparently he had a special relationship with, trying to circumcise him. That's basically what we get from verses one through five, and somehow we're supposed to draw out that the gospel builds the church. Well, how possibly could I mean this? If you remember from last week, we talked about gospel doctrine, and we talked about this other thing that's really important, gospel culture. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. If you remember from last week in fact you can turn back to chapter 15 verse 32 actually maybe on the top of your page if you have one of those fancy pants journals Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets encouraged and strengthened the brothers with what many words many words there was gospel doctrine being disseminated there was gospel teaching being done which is really really important in the life of the church those of you who are part of the uh, original uh, founding team, whatever we want to call ourselves, who were there at the very beginning meeting, you remember that was one of the very first things we talked about, gospel doctrine. We started right there and we hunkered down as, is Jesus really enough? Like on paper, we did some theological tests. We read this book called Gospel Fluency and the Gospel-Centered Life Curriculum. We did all of that to help us to understand that the gospel doctrine, what we believe on paper, can this sustain the church? Well, we see here Judas and Silas with many words strengthening the church with the doctrine, which is really helpful. But in this passage tonight, verses one through five, we see the other part of the gospel that's really, really important for us, strengthening in the gospel. It's not just that gospel doctrine exists on paper, but that this gospel then is actually transforming the life of a community in a particular kind of way, a particular kind of culture, that love is being actually expressed in the life of the church, that the fellowship and the one and others are actually happening, The gospel doctrine must then lift off of the paper into the hearts of people who are actually breathing and pumping blood and into this world. It has to get there. Or else what good is gospel doctrine? What good is dry gospel doctrine if it doesn't transform an entire culture of people into the community? And we see this clearly here in in verses one through five of chapter 16 gospel doctrine strengthens the church but gospel culture strengthens the church if you look back at verse 32 verse of of chapter 15 verse 41 of chapter 15 and then go all the way to verse 5 of chapter 16 you'll see this common theme of strengthening they were strengthened and they were strengthened and now again we see that they were strengthened What you begin to see is that the gospel strengthens the church. The gospel builds the church, but not just in doctrine. The gospel encourages and strengthens the church in its culture. Gospel culture shapes the church and builds the church. And this is astonishing here in the life of Timothy. Timothy, uh, you probably know the name if you're around uh, church or uh, if you've read the Bible, you know the name Timothy. He comes up uh, huge portions. In fact, there's two uh, pastoral letters written from Paul to Timothy named 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy and Second Timothy, named after him. Actually, he didn't write it. Paul wrote it to him as a way to encourage this young pastor in the faith. Paul in 1 Timothy would call him my true child in the faith. There's good reason to believe that Paul actually led uh, Timothy to the Lord, and uh, we have even from uh, this passage and others, uh, the description of Timothy's mom, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, who brought Timothy up in the faith. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 would call chi- uh, Timothy again, my beloved and faithful child. This was a, one of those relationships in ministry that is kind of set apart. Uh, don't let a pastor ever tell you that he doesn't pick favorites. Sorry, everybody has favorites. Moms, dads, sorry, but you have a favorite. I'd like to, I know you'd like to think, I don't, I don't have a, you, you have a favorite, all right? You do. And it's maybe okay? I don't know. I won't judge you for it at least. Paul certainly won't. He had a favorite, Timothy. As I mentioned, he was raised in the faith by Eunice and then Lois, his grandmother from 2 Timothy 1. We get that information. Timothy is a half Jew and half Gentile believer. There's good reason to believe that Eunice and Lois uh, were not practicing Jews, that upon their own conversion, they switched to Christianity and then they raised Timothy up, not as a Jew, but as a Christian. And if the entire town knows that Timothy's dad was a Greek, that he's kind of this mixed breed in the Jewish mind, intermarrying is not a good thing. It's a, it's a really challenging thing for, for the Jews to get over. And then you have the fact that Eunice and Lois didn't raise him Jewish, even though he was Jewish at least half Jewish, it would have been very hard for the Jews to accept what Timothy would have to say. It'd be very hard for any Jew to take Timothy seriously knowing his credentials, even though he had some. He didn't have enough. And so at this moment, because of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, Paul actually does maybe, and it feels like spiritual whiplash here a little bit, Paul actually encourages Timothy to be circumcised. Even though chapter 15, Paul had just laid a boom, took a giant trip, wrote a letter, encouraged the church about how you didn't actually need to be circumcised. And it might give us a little bit of like, what is Paul doing here? It might be a little confusing. It's helpful to understand that this account falls right in line with Paul's practice that he's always been preaching. That in Christ Christ, we have the freedom both to take up liberty and also to pass off liberty. We have the ability to actually do what we are free to do, but we actually have the freedom then to not do what we are free to do. That's why they call it freedom, because you can choose. You can do one or the other and you're still free. Paul, this practice that Paul encourages, Timothy falls right in line with this idea of freedom, of Christian freedom. Paul's practice is, oh, I have it listed here for you at 1 Corinthians 9. Ugh, I'm giving it away here. 1 Corinthians 9. This has always been part of Paul's practice. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order that I might win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not of course being outside the law of God, but certainly under the law of Christ, not ruled by the moral law, but ruled by the law of love, the law of Christ himself, that I might win those outside the law. Or excuse me the ceremonial law, the moral law he's he's under <laughs> moral law he's under but under the law of Christ that i might win those outside of the law to the weak i became weak that i might win the weak i have become all things to all people that by all means i might save some i do it all for the sake of the gospel that i might share with them in its blessings do you see what's do you see what's driving paul is it the law no. Is it license? No. He can do either one. He can submit himself to the law if he needs to. Why? Because he's free. Whether he's actually pulling the law off or not is irrelevant because of what Jesus has done. He's resting in the gospel. But then he could also take up his license and say, I can do all these things that in old times you weren't supposed to do. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of his sin. And so he doesn't need to worry about the law in this sense. He's now motivated by freedom and to love. And so he said, I can actually take up my rights or I can lay them down. I can do whatever I need to, to serve the gospel so that I might make the gospel known to all. And so there are times where we have to lay down our freedoms so that the gospel may be made clear in that relationship. Other times you can take up your freedoms. And you can enjoy what God has always created for you to enjoy so that the gospel might be heralded in that situation. You can do whatever you need to do and be whoever you need to be so that you might serve the gospel. You have that freedom to do that. This has always been in line with Paul's theology and practice. And so you begin to see that the gospel doctrine is now shaping gospel culture where we see the love of Jesus freely given to us in gospel doctrine, now we see an entire church whose culture is demonstrated by freely giving. We can give to others just as Jesus gave to us and it creates an entire way of life for believers. This helps us understand that Paul championed love more than any other virtue. He championed love as the greatest thing that we could offer to this dying world. What we also begin to see is that what was unnecessary for acceptance with God was helpful for loving people. Let me say that again. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God was helpful for loving people. Do you see that? Did Did Timothy have to be circumcised in order to get love from God? No, he already had it. So he didn't have to do it. But what we realize to love people, to love the Jews well, it may be the best, it may be helpful for Timothy to be circumcised, which again, let's be honest, circumcision or uncircumcision don't mean anything, as Paul says in Galatians. The only thing that matters is faith working itself out in love. That's what matters. When it comes to pursuing love, you are not enslaved to your freedom. When it comes to love, you are not enslaved to your freedom. But also, you are free from the fear of legalism. Just because you feel like like Timothy, you have to do something that would bind yourself to something. You don't have to, if it's motivated for the love of Christ and the love of your neighbor, you don't have to fear that just because you take the more conservative stance that that's legalism. Don't let anybody tell you that just because you actually resist your liberties for the sake of loving your neighbor, that that's legalism. My friend, that is not not legalism, that is love. And it's a beautiful demonstration of the gospel. And you are free to do it. When it comes to pursuing love, you are not enslaved to your freedom. Though you can do whatever you want, you're not enslaved to that notion. Don't, don't, Don't turn your... Don't turn your liberty as an opportunity for your flesh. Don't get that confused. But through love, serve. But also you're free from the fear of legalism. You can actually bind something to your heart for the sake of your neighbor, my friend, and that is a wonderful Christ-honoring thing to do. Luther says of Paul in this moment that Paul was strong in faith and soft in love strong in faith, but soft in love. Or as John Newton says a very similar thing, Paul was a reed in non-essentials. He was a reed. He could be pushed over on non-essentials, man. He could be plucked out on non-essentials. You could could push and pull Paul around all you wanted on the non-essentials. But he was an iron pillar in essentials, hunkered down in the work of Jesus, not moving from justification by faith alone. But then when it came to non-essentials, man, you could push that guy around all you wanted. He was free for all. May that be said of us as a church, that we hunker down in where love truly comes from, Jesus alone, but then on all the other things, how can we serve you? How can we help you? How can we make known the mystery of Christ himself to you? How can we make him known? It's a wonderful thing. And so in this, in this moment, in this moment, because remember the Jerusalem council then told us you don't have to be circumcised in order to be loved by God. And now we have Paul actually encouraging Timothy to be circumcised. What this demonstrates for us is that Jerusalem council actually secured two major things for the church. It, hung, it actually like, like nailed and bolted down two really important things that as the church, we too must grab a hold of. The power of the gospel, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. He is sufficient, all you need for this entire life. But it also secured for us the power of love. It secured for us the power to actually freely move to our neighbor to not be enslaved to our freedoms, but then to not be bound up by the things we choose to do for the sake of love. It actually, like, the power of love is something that this world longs for, but it doesn't really know much about. Because a lot of the world's definitions of love is actually in pursuit of its own liberties, in pursuit of its own sense of freedom. It's actually an enslavement to what its flesh naturally wants. And what Jesus is saying here is because of, or what the apostles and elders have basically said is because of the work of Jesus, you're actually now for the first time able to not care about yourself. You're good. But to f- for the first time, look at your neighbor and say, what do they need? How can I communicate the gospel most clearly to this person? How can I help this person understand the gospel in a deeper way today? Even though they might be believers, even though they might be unbelievers, how can I help this person understand more how much God loves them than they did yesterday? You're actually now for the first time free to think about them and not yourself. That's what the Jerusalem Council gave to us. And so my friends, this is how we can say, like, what's next for the church? What's next for us? Well, if we're gonna grow, if we're gonna reach the people that God calls us to reach, if we're gonna be doing the thing that God wants us to do, if we're gonna attract new people, we're going to take our next step, we're going to find out where we're going, I hope it's like Paul and Timothy here who understand that it's not just that the gospel doctrine builds the church, but gospel culture, and we can lay aside our liberties, and we can take up liberties for the sake of making Jesus known to people around us. I hope that that's how we grow. I hope we hunker down in gospel doctrine and gospel culture, because it builds the church. It does the thing. We see this as it worked Timothy gets circumcised they pass around the news of what the apostles and elders they bring to light the purity of the gospel and what happens in verse five the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily why all because Paul and Timothy in love put down their freedoms and have started to love people it's a beautiful thing so that's our next step well how are we going to get there what are we going to do well, we're also going to trust the Spirit. Because, to be honest, if I had to take account of all of those questions, what's next? How are we going to grow? How do we attract people? What's our next step? All of those things. Pastorally, like just personally, because I've read a lot of books and i read a lot of like church growth stuff and church planning stuff, all the books that you're supposed to read in seminary because they tell you that these are the books you have to read. I'm not knocking on them, they're probably really good books, but like sometimes you get to these questions and you're like gee i I don't know i don't know i really don't I've done all these things i've I've executed the book. I did what the author told me to do, and guess what? We're still not growing. I still don't know what's next, truly. I still don't know how we're going to attract people. <laughs> feels a little strange feels like there's a missing glue it feels like there's something that like I myself can't do or can't sustain or can't build. It's, it's almost like the church is this organism and not an organization. Then the Spirit of God is needed to actually build this thing that Jesus says, I will build my church. Not pastors and not textbooks. We need the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who guides the church. Read with me, if you will, uh, chapter 16, verse 6 through, 11, uh, 6 through 10. when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See, so what's our next step? I kind of hope I don't know. And I kind of hope that you hope I don't know. Why? Why would I say that? And I don't mean that we need to st- just need to be careless and just throw caution to the wind and... Fly by the seat of our pants and we will we'll tell you when we get there. No, we need to have a plan. We need to do what God's called us to do today, but there's something unmistakable about the nature of church work, is that the Spirit guides this thing. The Spirit does this thing. And by the way, the Spirit is enough. What the Spirit is doing amongst us you remember his whole job description, John 16, John 17, his entire job description is to bring to remembrance all that Jesus said and did. That's, that's Jesus' own definition or job description for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. We often think of like, he's the comforter. He, he is the comforter, but what is he going to comfort us in? He's going to help us to remember all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. The Spirit doesn't shine the light on himself. The Spirit always shines the light on Jesus. It's helpful to remember what kind of ministry we're going to be receiving from the Spirit. But certainly within this life of ministry here, as Paul goes out to strengthen the churches that he just planted, you can see that there are objective realities of ministry by the Spirit. And there are also these subjective experiences that they have. And it's sometimes hard to put these things together. There are objective realities that we know, that we trust, that we believe in, that we put on paper, that we execute. But then as a church, there's also the subjective experience of simply walking day by day with the Spirit. It's amazing. You you guys have done this spiritually, and maybe you have not done this like specifically, but you know the kind of mental gymnastics you have done like like i have done right you wake up early i'm gonna have a good day today i'm gonna have a good day today wake up get the coffee brewing that's the first start right jesus comes second we gotta have our coffee right you wake up you get your coffee then you crack open your bible you spend time in prayer you spend time in the word you get this revelation from god like god wants me to have a good day today it's gonna be great it's gonna be awesome no nothing formed against me shall stand. It's gonna be great. And then your kid comes down and like before he even opens his mouth, he just pukes. You know what I'm saying? Like that that's that is life. And today like and then it goes downhill from, from that point on. You've had those days. I've had those days. Sometimes the objective realities that we are banking in and trusting in run up against the subjective experiences of life day to day, and we have a hard time putting them together. Well, guess what? Church is no different. Ministry is no different. Say, how are we going to attract new people? And you have a version of what the kind of person that you possibly could attract, right? Super scholars. They're always going to be, that guy's going to be an elder. She's going to run the children's ministry, right? They're all going to be awesome people, and that's how we're going to build a church. And then God brings you Fred. And Fred can't do anything. Fred has problems. Fred Fred can't give, Fred takes. See what I'm saying? These are these objective realities of ministry. And then there are these subjective experiences that guess guess who's in charge of running all this? Guess who's in charge of bringing Fred to your church? Guess who has great designs for Fred in your church? Guess who has great designs for building your church with Fred on board? The Spirit of God. And it would be foolish for you to take your objective realities and cram them through the sausage maker of ministry, life, and experience without listening to the Spirit of God who makes this whole thing go. We talked to many of you as you were thinking about church life and church planting and and doing this thing, and we questioned all of you. Nikki and I questioned all of you with the same question we asked ourselves. Are we called to do this? We wanted, we wanted you to see what we were seeing in terms of a, a personal calling from the Lord. Because guess what? This is not going to be fun. I mean, maybe the first year will be fun because you like building stuff and you're young and you feel like you have energy, right? But then it gets hard. Why? Because Fred, right? Okay, it gets hard at times. And so you have to have, have this understanding that when life gets hard, a calling is not going to, Uproot you just because it's hard. A calling's a calling. You're called to it, right? Some of you are called to parent your children. It gets hard, but you can't quit. Some of you are called to a certain kind of ministry task, or God's put someone in your life to disciple. You can't quit just because it's hard, because it's uncomfortable. You're called. It's the same way with us. And so I put these things on here as helps to bring them up again. These objective realities and subjective experiences as a way to help you think through what life can be like as you process what God would want you to do objectively versus the experience that you're experiencing ministerially. And so you have these things and they kind of move from subjective to objective. If you were here with us, you should remember these. I was like, oh yeah, I remember thinking through some of these. But uh, these are, these are not... My words aren't really even inspired, although uh, from verse nine and 10, I think you can see all three present. So that's helpful. Um, these actually come from Tim Keller. If you're familiar with him, if you don't like him, you can leave. I don't care, what, whatever. Tim Keller, he's just a dude. Um, but the things that you bank on in kind of a subjective way, moving to more objective things that give clarity to what the spirit is doing, to how the spirit's leading. So first of all, he, he often gives us a personal desire. And th- again, this is the most subjective thing because literally you could say like, I think God's calling me to start a, uh, uh, a balloon-making ministry where I'm gonna minister to kids on the street by making balloons. And I'll try as hard as I can to like straight face and be like, yeah, of course he has. It's awesome. And yeah, that's, cool, that's a cool ministry. And you'd be surprised God uses that. But it's a personal desire. God gives that to you, and it feels like, I mean, I don't know, this sounds crazy. I want to start a church in Columbus, Ohio. It sounds crazy. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how we can get help. I don't know. I don't know. But then it kind of moves on. That's very sub- subjective. You pray. You think. You, you know, you read your Bible. You say, like, Lord, guide me, shape me. Is this real? Should I follow this? And as your conversation, as your Christian life kind of goes, you're interacting with the life of the church, Hopefully. And what you begin to see is this corporate confirmation. You see the body of Christ come around you, and they start to see the same desire that you have. They start to hear the desire of this ministry, and or whatever God's calling you to do, and they're starting to like either nod their head and say, yeah, you know? And you might even hear crazy things like, you know, I've, I've had this done before. Like, I was praying that God would lead you there. I mean, crazy stuff like that. Or you know what? It's funny. I heard you were coming to Columbus, Ohio, and I was praying for Pataskala, and God put you right here in Blacklick. It's like, okay, there's there's confirmation of the body of Christ, and it's really helpful to get, uh, as we talked about a couple sermons ago, uh, a group of elders on board, church leadership on board. The more ch- organic church people you can get involved in your life around what God's shaping you to do, the better and clearer it'll become. Because you know what? They might look at you and be like, dude, that's that's crazy. Like no, sorry, but but no. Have you ever made a balloon, dude? Like you're ter- you have like lead hands, dude. Like that's not that's not gonna work. That's not gonna work. People can tell you those things, and there's actually lists of qualifications for elders and pastors, and these can be helpful guides as we think through the stewards of ministry. And there's all sorts of things in the back of the epistles that help guide and shape how we should be living in the life of the church and how as ministers of the gospel uh, we should shape our lives uh, under the arrangement of the gospel and those are really helpful things and hopefully people are pointing those things out to you in in good and bad ways but that moves the the bar from subjective to a little bit more objective if you get people in your house and they're saying like dude like we see that it's not just your vision anymore I, I, th- I think God's in on this. Look, I mean, look what Paul said. He, he had this vision, verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. It was corroborated. I mean, they didn't see the vision, but they caught the vision and they said, yeah, okay, that sounds, that sounds great. Let's try there. And they didn't have it all worked out. It wasn't fully clear. It wasn't fully objective. Why? Because number three, you need a faith-filled plan. You need some sort of clear hey, guys, this kind of makes sense, okay? Like, it it needs to be some sort of path. Uh, Some of you know that this is what Nikki and I were waiting on for a long time. I I had been desiring church planting for a long time. It's kind of always been within my, like, I I think God may have this down the road for us. Nikki was always like, I'm not a church planter's wife, so forget it. Like, you have to find a new one. See ya. Um, But it was was hard, and we kind of always had this in it. We had people around us saying, like, you know, you should consider this. So we went to seminary. Bounced around a couple churches, got a couple elder boards looking at our lives saying, Yeah, this is important. We went to Acts 29 and went to the NAM assessment to, to get outside sources like, Hey, is this real? Is this what we should be doing? Do you see gifts and talents? And, you know, do you see attunement here with what, with what we're, we're kind of saying here? And what we had always lacked at that point, we had those people, what we always lacked was a clear path. And finally, it was literally when, when um, East North Church in Acts 29 like literally came to us and say, we have a path for you. We, we have it laid out. We can help you get to where God's calling you to get. It was like, well, it was like we couldn't say no at that moment. It was like literally God was showing us the road. He was showing us the path, and literally like we had to jump on. It was like a running treadmill, and here we are. But that, so, some of you, like that's, that's where you, you might be in a waiting game, and that's okay. Sit, wait, be faithful, but allow the Spirit to guide, and don't, don't move too soon. If you don't have these things lined up here, Paul said we're going to Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You, you know how they, they knew that it was God's will? When, well, when they got there and they started preaching the gospel to them, then they're like, ah, that was, a, that was it. That was it. We saw the clear path and boom, obviously we're supposed to be doing it. Why? Because God doesn't make mistakes and here we are doing it. It's clear. It moves from that kind of subjective to the objective. And here in this passage here, we see pushes and pulls. There are yeses and there are noes. In fact, there are two noes and there's a yes, which goes to show you, you know, there's that old adage, like, well, when one door closes, another door opens. Uh, by the way, Miranda, that I was thinking about your meme all, all week. When one door closes, another door, door opens, but she's still a great car. Like, that was, a, that, was a great, that was a great meme. I almost put that up there. I was like, I will do that. But here I am anyway. Um, what we see is when one door closes, sometimes another door closes, and then maybe another one opens. We'll have to see. We'll have to take a step of faith, the faith-filled path, right? It's not clear. We'll see like if our foot lands, that's how we know. Faithful path. I, I can see how it might work out, but I have no idea. I'm going to step out. I'm going to go do it. What you have what you have to trust in those moments is the spirit knows what he's doing. The Spirit's going to guide. The Spirit's going to direct. The Spirit won't let my foot hit and there'd be nothing there. He might redirect my foot. He might stop my foot altogether. But if he wants us to do it, he'll put it there. We'll be safe, right? This is Psalm 23, one of our favorite passages. He leads me on right paths for his namesake. If you find yourself on the wrong path, he's not God. Oh, that's right. He's forever God. You will always be on the right path. He won't make mistakes. He won't mislead you. He won't forget to shepherd you that day. He won't go, ah, I meant they were supposed to be on that path. Hey, can you send an angel to... <laughs> might feel like that's what's happening. But that's, that's not what's happening. He never makes mistakes. So in those moments, we have to lean on the objective realities that God has given us mainly, mainly. And again, this is what the Spirit's trying to get us to understand. The Spirit is trying to redirect our hearts to understand more of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that might mean that the Spirit might lead you into hell, into really hard times, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's okay. You'll understand more about your shepherd in that moment. And so the Spirit might be leading you there. That's fine. It might lead you to really wonderful things, really great fruitful ministry opportunities. And that's fine as well. But in all of it, we trust the Spirit to lead and to guide so you say, so what's next for a good shepherd? I don't know. I know I got a couple things like a building we're looking at. I know I'm really just concerned personally just for all of you that you're understanding the gospel, just loving Jesus, being loved by him first and foremost. I hope you, go, I hope you guys just go home and just remember that it's okay to go to sleep tonight because Jesus loves you. That's, I mean, that's, that's what I really want you guys to know and embrace no matter what you're facing. But beyond that, even as we put a plan forward, even as we continue to minister week to week, you know, I hope the Spirit continues to guide us. I hope He keeps saying like, nope, not that, nope, no, not there. I want you to go straight ahead. I want you to go right through. And amazing, we're going to go through and we're going to find that Europe is going to get the gospel. That's what we're going to find out. We don't see that. It's hard for us to see, right? We're going to go to Asia, right? We're going to go to Bithynia. And God's going to nope, I got Europe on my mind. It's pretty cool. We don't, we we can't see that kind of stuff, but God does. We have to trust him. So what's next? Well, we're not leaving the gospel. We're not leaving the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is sufficient for your soul. It's sufficient to be able to, I'm talking about gospel doctrine right here, right now. Gospel doctrine is sufficient for your soul. Just like it was sufficient for Paul in the middle of the, the, the Jerusalem trial. Just like it is for Timothy. What if Timothy makes a mistake? He gets circumcised when he wasn't supposed to. Oh man, all the guilt and shame. It's sufficient for your soul. It's sufficient for love. Love has the ability, God's love given to us as brought out by gospel culture has the ability to guide us on matters of liberty. Say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this person? This person's weird. Love has the power to give you wisdom in those moments. Not a book. Not a helpful uh, psychology resource. Those can be helpful. But what's going to sustain you is pure, free love that's only given to you by Jesus. And it's sufficient for our mission. Wherever you make disciples, at home, at work, here at church, it's sufficient. The gospel is sufficient for you as you make disciples. So lean on it. Trust it. Let the Spirit guide and direct you. Let's pray. God, we do trust you, even though we see things very dimly and we don't see things clearly. We trust you. Father, even as we go throughout our week this week, you've called us to do much for the sake of the gospel. You've called us to love much. And I pray that we would see what Paul and Timothy were wrestling with, their own freedoms, their own liberties, and that we, like them, and much like Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it, uh, equality with God, as a thing to be held to, but made himself nothing. So, Father, might we be made nothing for the sake of our neighbors. Might we pursue the love that you have so freely poured into our hearts as we go from here. Father, we ask that you would not just put us to sleep with thoughts of gospel doctrine, but, Father, I pray that even as a church, we would be so encouraged and strengthened by the gospel culture that you have brought in here. May the love of Jesus constrain us forward as we move to whatever the spirit might have in us.